was um, 2011, I heard Jason Sivright speak um, at this event called NYC, and he shared to students. And I thought, well, I really enjoyed that more than the rest of what he spoke before every service and the spoken word kind of thing. And it was my favorite part. And so I reached out to him about a year later and said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of coordinating this youth event where about 800 teenagers go ski in Wisconsin, and there'll be a few trips to the hospital. But outside those trips to the hospital, uh, we have a few services together. Would you want to come and speak? And he said he would. And so uh, that was in 2013, right before I came here. And so um, kind of known him from afar and haven't really got to know him well, but enough that we've talked a few times and ran into him again last February in Kansas City and said, hey, um, you want to come speak in Michigan? And he said, um, I'm an Ohio State fan, but yes, no. Um, he didn't say that. I'm just throwing that out there. So I probably just buried him before we start. Um, he grew up in Ohio. It's not his fault, right? Um, so, so Jason Sivright has become someone I appreciate his voice. And so I invite Jason to come and share with us today. Thank you, guys. I'm going to use one of these music stands. So you guys don't know very much about me, but like Aaron said, my name is Jason Sivright, and I, do fr I come from Kansas City, so I'm, I'm not from Ohio now. So you can, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge Chiefs fan, I'm still kind of reveling in our Super Bowl win, so uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes are far away from my mind right now. So. Um, but a little bit about me, so I have a family, um, my wife's name is Jillian, and we are both artists. My wife is a modern ballet dancer. I always have to add the modern ballet part because in certain circles, if you just say dancer, people get the wrong idea. <laughs> She's a modern ballet dancer, and we're both kind of artists. Um, we are blessed right now. She's perfecting the art of being a mama. We have two boys. We have a five-year-old son named Isaiah, and he wanted me to tell you that he's an artist too. He wanted me to make sure that I shared that. And then we have a nine-month-old son named Shepard. And I brought pictures of them. I think we can pull them up if you guys can. Throw up that. That's us celebrating the Chiefs before they won the Super Bowl. And then you can't really see Isaiah and Shepard. So the next picture is of Isaiah before his first day of preschool. And then the next picture is Shepard waving hello to everyone. So I hate being away from them. So if you talk to me you'll find that I talk about them a lot. So I'm sorry in advance that I talk about them so much. So you can go ahead. I'm sure you guys would love to see that throughout the whole sermon, but you wouldn't listen to a word that I said. So you can go ahead and take, don't put that one up yet. That'll be the next one. And you can just blank the screen if you want to, because no one will listen to me if I have Shepard up there saying hello. So that's a little bit about me. Um, the sermon, the scripture we're going to start with this this morning is Matthew 5, 6. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, it's just one line. It's, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this line comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And what you guys need to know about me, another thing you need to know about me right off the bat, is I am a Sermon on the Mount fanatic. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I, I believe that Matthew 5 through 7, just those three chapters of Scripture, meant this is Jesus telling us, he's giving us the building blocks for living life. In fact, I think you shouldn't do this. You should know the entire narrative of God. But if you studied just Matthew 5 through 7 for your whole life, you would never exhaust the meaning behind those chapters. That's how much I really believe is in Matthew 5 through 7. 
And at one point in my life, I was prompted by the Holy Spirit to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. But not just to memorize it, because you know how when you memorize things, it can just be like words that you're putting in the proper order. But he, he prompted me to write my own version of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're a Bible person, if you read the Bible a lot, I, I dare you to do that. Because what it, what it forced me to do was think about what Jesus was actually saying when he, when he said those words. I had to think about the meaning behind those words. And when I got to this place in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, I made on the first pass a fair and yet incomplete analysis of what Jesus was saying. What I thought Jesus was saying, and this is true, that there's so much garbage in this world, there's so much junk in this world that you can gorge yourself on, but you will only be left empty. But if you fill yourself with what is good and pure, then you will be filled. Amen? I mean, we can all believe that that's true. We all have examples of that in our life, whether figurative or, or reality. We both have, we all have examples of that. I, I have this friend, his name is Josh, and we have this interesting friendship where people want to be around us because you never know just what kind of crazy thing is going to happen. You guys have friends like that? Like, we don't do it on purpose, it's just we're the kind of people that we just get into stuff together. And I brought a picture of the two of us, you already caught a glimpse of it, but you can see it again. So this is Josh and I. This was our attempt, our innocent attempt, to take church directory photos, not together. We were in line next to each other, and I don't know if this photographer was having like the best or the worst day of her life, but she pulled us in together and began to pose us together. I don't know why we didn't stop this, but we just went through with it, and believe it or not, this is the least embarrassing of the photos. You can go, go ahead and show the next one. So there's this one. There's another one that I won't show to you that has us crossing our arms back to back like 80s sitcom style. This is the kind of stuff, and you can go ahead and take that down as fast as possible too. This is the kind of stuff that Josh and I would get into. And so we used to have this tradition that whenever it was the other person's birthday, you would buy, the other would buy dinner for that person, which sounds like a really tame and really nice tradition to have. The problem, this, the kind of twist that we put on it was whatever you bought them, they had to eat. Yeah. And so it was one time, it was Josh's birthday, and we went out to the Cheesecake Factory. If you know the Cheesecake Factory, you know the portions are huge. Like, you can barely finish one, one thing, let alone many things. And I don't know, I was single at the time. I had a credit card. I didn't understand how credit cards worked. It was like free money to me. So I'm just buying Josh, like, one thing after the other, man. Like, and not... Any, anything healthy, like the most greasy, fattiest things I can buy, and I'm just sending them to Josh. And he, without complaint, is just killing it. He is taking it down. He polishes this all off with a Snickers cheesecake, which if you know is like the heaviest cheesecake they have. And we leave, and we're with a group of friends, and we're celebrating Josh's birthday by going out to a show that my wife was in. It's a ballet that my wife was in. So I had gotten us all tickets and we're headed that way, and if you know anything about ballets, they're kind of, it's kind of a formal event, so we're all dressed up. And as we're headed that way, I notice that Josh isn't saying a whole lot. And he has his hands on his stomach. And so I'm kind of like, Josh, are you, are, you, are you good? And he's not talking to me. 
I don't, I don't know if it's because he's angry with me or if it's because he just lacks the ability to speak at this moment. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, I'm going to back off because he's dealing with some stuff. And, and so if you can imagine this in your mind, I won't kind of say too much about it because some of you just ate donuts and I don't want to like... So we're coming, we're pulling into the parking lot of this event. And people are walking in in their formal attire. It's kind of a formal event. And it's right when we're pulling into the parking lot that Josh decides that it's too much. <laughs> and I won't fill you in on the details of what happened next because, again, it's a little bit too much to tell you. But it was very embarrassing for us to go in and watch that ballet after what took place in that parking lot. The moral of the story is if you fill yourself with what is gross, and not just what you eat, but what you see, what you hear, then you will be left empty. But if you fill yourself with what is good, then you will be filled. Amen? And, and I could pray, and we could go home, and it would be nice, but the thing with Christianity, the thing about Jesus' words, is there's always more. There's always more. Thank goodness there's always more, Right? This would be so boring if we could just be like, we figured out everything there is to know about Christianity, so we don't really have to come here anymore, you know? There's always more that he's teaching us. And the more that I found when it comes to this scripture was in the linking together of two stories when I was studying atonement theories. And I know that sounds like a really like heady theological thing, and as you get to know me more, you'll find that that, that ain't me. You know, as it, I just told you a, a story about throwing up, so you should have already learned that. But atonement, atonement theories is basically what Pastor Holly shared. It, it's theories about what Jesus did when he did what he did. What did Jesus do? What did he take care of when he came and lived and died on the cross and rose again? What was he making up for? And the beautiful thing, as you can imagine, with these atonement theories, the magnitude of that event, one of them can't encapsulate all of it. So you find beautiful truth in a lot of them, Right? And so the one that really fascinates me is this one that says that basically Jesus was here to atone for our sins, but he was also here to atone for the wrongs of the people of God. So in the Old Testament, you see all these, these stories about the people of God, the Israelites, going the wrong way and showing themselves to be unrighteous. Which, by the way, I should define righteousness as right relationship with God and others. If you want to write that down so you remember it. Righteousness is right relationship with God and others. So there's all these stories in the Old Testament where they show themselves to be unrighteous. And when Jesus comes, he is putting all those wrongs right. It's a fascinating atonement theory. And so let me explain it in these two corresponding stories. So one of the first things that Jesus does in his earthly ministry is he's baptized. So he goes through the water, and then he heads out into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days, and so he is hungry, right? So the Israelites, they come out of Egypt. How do they do that? They go through the Red Sea. They pass through the water. They go out into the wilderness, and it's about 40 days before they go to Aaron and Moses and say, hey, we are hungry. And so you see how this works. They kind of correspond and run parallel alongside each other. So then this is what happens. What do the Israelites do with their hunger? They say, Moses, Aaron, can we go back to Egypt? Can we just go back? I mean, we, we were comfortable there. 
We had food there. I mean, we were slaves there. We weren't really close to what God wants us to be, but at least we were comfortable. And so in their physical hunger, their heart, their spiritual hunger is revealed, and they're found to be unrighteous. They don't want right relationship with God. They want comfort. They hunger for comfort and stability. You take it even further in their story. God provides for them with this crazy thing called manna that falls from the sky. They collect it six days a week. They are not to collect it on the seventh day because that is their Sabbath day. But what do they do? They still go out and collect it on the seventh day. Why? Because they want to get more than their brothers and sisters. So they don't hunger and thirst for righteousness with their brothers and sisters because they're trying to get more than their brothers and sisters. So they find themselves to be unrighteous. The very first temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness is what? The devil tells him, turn these stones into bread. And it makes sense, right? Jesus is hungry. Like, why wouldn't he do that? But he answers him by saying, for it is written... Man does not live on bread alone, but on every single word that comes from the mouth of God. That is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 8, where it is being explained how the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they failed to be righteous. So you see how this works. He's atoning for what went wrong with the people of God. He is making up for that. So what's going on here? I know that's a lot of theological stuff. Basically what's happening here is we find that hunger is a matter of the heart. And I'm not talking about physical hunger. I'm talking about spiritual hunger as a matter of the heart. It's not necessarily a matter of changing behaviors. We can change behaviors, and behaviors will sometimes change our appetite, will change our heart, and we'll talk about that more. But when the Israelites were in the desert, their heart was revealed, and they were found unrighteous. When Jesus was in the wilderness, his heart was revealed, and he was found righteous because, in fact, he embodied righteousness. So we have to ask ourselves, If we are honest with ourselves, we are people that our hunger too often reveals that of the Israelites. We hunger after things, money or or other things. We hunger for things more than we hunger for right relationship with God. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it look like to hunger, to really desire right relationship with God and our brothers and sisters more than anything else. What would that look like? How would, that, how would we even begin to do that? The word for righteousness, this word is a really beautiful word because it basically is the greatest commandment. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And the word righteousness embodies those two things. And so the second one, this, this right relationship with others, because it includes that part, sometimes this word gets translated also as justice. Have you guys ever heard this word justice? You probably hear this word a lot. And the way to best understand justice is to understand injustice. Injustice is when there's an imbalance of power where one person benefits at the detriment of another. 
Now, does anyone like that? We don't like that. It's so easy for us when we hear what injustice is to say, yeah, I hunger and thirst for justice because what you just said, I don't like. I don't want people to benefit at the detriment of other people. I don't like that. But here's the thing. We live in such an unjust, unrighteous world that we can perpetuate issues of injustice without even knowing that we're doing it. We can perpetuate these issues and have unrighteousness in our heart without even knowing that it's there. I went to this conference recently that was in Chicago. And the very first speaker at this conference was this African-American guy who had a church down in inner city Chicago. And this guy was like an obvious prophet, man. Like he was raining down the word on us you know and and it was awesome but the point of his message was this he said you know you church people you want to make this lgbtq rights conversation and right when i said that the room like grew in intensity a little bit because everyone's like oh no what's he gonna say well take it easy that wasn't the point the point of the sermon was this you want to make that conversation a matter of justice and it is that But then he pointed out event after event after event that happened in Chicago right outside of his church that the church was silent or quiet about. Issues of racial injustice. And his point was this. We can't choose as a church which things are a matter of justice and which things aren't. We can't choose which things are a matter of justice and and which things aren't. That's privilege. That's a privilege that we're using that we don't have. And man, it lit a fire in that conference, man. During his sermon, there were some people that were standing up and applauding. There were some people that stood up and walked out. There were some people that were sitting and just processing it. I mean, it stirred everybody. And I was taking this this class at this conference. And so I had the opportunity to, to kind of process this with all of my brothers and sisters, my colleagues from around the globe of all different ethnicities and minorities and all different things. And as I spoke to them about this issue, you know what occurred to me that I probably should have realized a long time ago? This might surprise you. I'm white. Did you guys know that? I'm male. I am a white man in America. Every single imbalance of power, you know who it benefits? Me. Whether I like it or not. And I know that we can say, I didn't ask for this. I I, I was born this way. Or we can say the biggest cop-out is, well, I wish it wasn't that. I, I wish I was a part of a minority. Man, that's a cop-out. The truth is that I benefit from it, and I'm sure that I enjoy it in a way. And so I left that conference, and I'm sure the weight of some of you are in the same situation. You feel that. Like, what do we even do? Just because of the fact that I'm white and I'm a man in America, I, I tend to perpetuate these injustices, these imbalances of power that benefit me. And so I was asking my brothers and sisters of different ethnicities and minorities, what do I do? And you know what their encouragement was to me? And this is my first challenge for you. You know what they said? Do one thing. Do one thing. One thing to shift the balance of injustice that you see around you. 
one thing. Because Micah 6.8 says to do justice. Do justice. Because when it comes to justice, it is in the doing that our appetite changes. When we start doing justice and longing for right relationship with our brothers and sisters of all different cultures and ethnicities, our appetite changes. And you will begin to notice the injustices around you and you will hunger and thirst to do something about it. Amen? So you know what we did? Me and my wife, my wife and I, um, Isaiah's five. And so we, we're right at the point where he's, he's trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out where to send him to school. And uh, we, I, I live in Kansas City, Missouri, so right outside the city, but I work in a suburb of Kansas City, which creates an interesting dynamic. It's very different where I live and where I work. And I would talk to people at my church about what school to send Isaiah to. And they would always say, you know, the, well, here's the schools that, you know, my kids and my grandkids went to, and they're great. And then the conversation would end this way. You know what you can't do is you can't send them to Kansas City Public Schools. Because, you know, those schools are just, they're not that great. And it's true that Kansas City Public Schools have been through rough years. They're not really highly rated schools. But every day, my wife and I would drive past this public school that's right down the street from our house. And you know who was on those playgrounds? Kids. There's kids in those schools. There's kids in those classrooms. I love the people at my church. I know they didn't have a bad heart about what they were saying. But what are we saying about those kids when we say, oh, no, no. Those schools are, they're just kind of for those people. They're not for us. And so you know what we did? We enrolled our, our we enrolled Isaiah right down the street at that school. Man, I'll tell you what, it was not easy. I don't want my five-year-old to have, to not have the opportunities that he could have at a different school just because his mom and his dad wanted to stand on a soapbox. I mean, I don't want that. But let me tell you what happened. God gave me the most blessed image, man. I went to the first day where you meet the teachers, you meet the students, and you meet the parents. And I barely recognized him, man. I was talking to the teachers and the other parents, and then I turned around to see Isaiah playing with all the other kids. I mean to tell you, every single student, there was barely one of them that wasn't of mixed ethnicity. Different cultures, different ethnicities, man. It was like they were all represented. And as I watched those kids playing together, I thought, this is heaven. This is a picture of heaven. And it's not easy. There's a 7-Eleven right across the street from that school. And there's sometimes when I go to that 7-Eleven, they're like, I'm not sure that there isn't drug deals going on here right across the street from where my son goes to school. But man, I took one step. One step to not perpetuate the issues of injustice in my community. And that's, my, that's what I'm daring you to do. That's my challenge for you. To hunger and thirst for righteousness with your brothers and sisters by taking one step of justice. And as hard as that is, and I know it's hard, I really honestly believe when it comes to this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the harder one is right relationship with God. 
It doesn't seem like it should be. But when we really get down to it, to hunger and thirst for right relationship with God. Think about that. It's crazy, man. It's like everything else in this world and our culture tries to draw our appetite to everything else. Amen? Everything else. And here's the thing about this one is I can't give you like a poignant illustration because it just has to be a conversation between you and God. You have to talk to him. You have to say, Lord, what am I hungering and thirsting for more than right relationship with you? There's a beautiful story in the Bible that basically is this conversation. The resurrected Jesus goes right back to his disciples. And the first conversation that he has is with Peter. Peter had just denied him on the cross three times. So this is an awkward conversation, as you can imagine. And Jesus, the conversation revolves around one question. Do you guys know what the question is? Do you love me? But then he adds on in the end, more than these. And if you guys know, or if some of you are theologians, you know that Jesus uses three different Greek words in that conversation. It's like varying levels of love, but he always adds the more than these. And people have tried to figure out, what is the more than these? Is it the disciples? Is it like the fish? I mean, what, what could it be? And I don't think we're supposed to know because it, it doesn't matter. It's anything that you hunger for more than right relationship with God. And the reason why we're not supposed to know is because you're supposed to see yourself in Peter's shoes or sandals. Looking at Jesus and he's asking you that question. Jason, do you love me more than that? Do you love me more than that one thing? Is your appetite for right relationship with me more than you hunger for comfort in your life more than you hunger for knowing the next step in your life and so what I want to do this morning and it might be kind of strange I know that silence is hard right but sometimes it's in the silence that God can speak to us so I just have a little bit more left but I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes And in your imagination, I want you to see yourself on that beach. And I want you to see the Lord standing in front of you. And he's asking you that question. Do you love me more than that? And what I want you to ask the Lord is, Lord, fill in that that blank. What am I putting in front of you? What am I placing before you? What am I honestly hungering for more than right relationship with you? I don't think in this silence that you will figure this out. But there's something about beginning this conversation with recognizing the thing that you're putting in front of Jesus. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of silence to have that conversation with the Lord.
I said earlier that Jesus embodies righteousness. And what I meant by that, that's really a picture of the Trinity. The Trinity is the embodiment of righteousness in that it is right relationship with God because it is God. But also it's right relationship with others because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, none of them benefit at the, at the, the detriment of the other. They are equal in power. They are equally God. Isn't that awesome? That is the great thing about being Trinitarian. We believe that the way we fix the world, we do this together. In fact, when painters would, used to depict the Trinity, they would always leave an opening. And that opening was for us. We are invited in to perfect relationship with God and with others. And as challenging as that is, and I know some of you are like, man, this, this is hard. It's supposed to be hard. But also I hope you're encouraged because as much as our appetite, as much as we hunger and thirst for right relationship with God, what you need to know is we will never come close to how much God hungers and thirsts for right relationship with you. We are taking slow steps towards him and he is sprinting towards us. It's one of the most beautiful images in all of the Bible. And this is the one that I want to leave you with. It's the story of the prodigal son, which we all know. But when we look at this story, we often see it in in a different context. The people that Jesus was speaking to, they they were Middle Eastern older men. These were fathers. So they would have seen themselves in the place of the father. We see ourselves in the place of the sons, and rightfully so. But when Jesus is telling them this story, they would have been like, man, this father is crazy. This father had the ability to flog his sons, to cast them out, to never accept them back. He could have exercised all kinds of power to get them out of his sight for all that they were doing. And everyone would have thought, yes, that's the right thing to do. These sons are evil and wicked. But you know, if you know the story, that every single time they show unrighteousness, what what does the father do? He comes closer. And the most beautiful image of that story is when the father is waiting for the lost son and he sees him off in the distance. A noble and upright and, and, you know, a, a respected father would have sent someone else out to get him, would have abandoned him, told him to go away. What does the father do? He lifts up his robes and he unashamedly sprints for his son. That's our God. We take slow steps towards righteousness and he is sprinting towards us the whole time. So let that encourage you as you hopefully leave here challenged to grow in our appetite for righteousness so that we might be the blessed, the full that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray with you. Father God, we are so grateful. That's all I can think is just gratitude that we kind of stumble through these steps and it's so hard for us to, to figure out what's the next step to take towards righteousness. And I, I could even feel in the room, you know, the kind of the tension with wrestling with, 
But how do we hunger and thirst for you more than anything else? Hunger and thirst for right relationship with our brothers and sisters more than anything else, Lord. But in the midst of that tension is where you do your best work in us. As we offer ourselves freely to you saying, Lord, show me the way. That is a prayer that you answer. that you long to answer when we ask you, Lord, we want to take steps towards you, we find that you are ready and you are willing to make us clean, to cleanse our hearts, to stir our hearts. And so, Lord, as we leave here this morning, as we sing these response songs and we leave here, Lord, we pray that you would just continue to stir us And we would leave here with a true appetite for right relationship with you. I pray that we would continue to see ourselves just like Peter on that beach looking at Jesus. And we would examine our lives and examine our hearts. And you would continue to point out the things that we're hungering and thirsting for more than you. And that you would help us to move those things out of the way so that we can see greater pictures of your beauty, the beauty of your kingdom, your righteousness. Lord, we just want to be closer to you. And I pray these next few days as I'm here with this church, Lord, that 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 would happen. That you would just open up a space where we can move closer to you, me included. We just want to be closer to you. Father God, we are your servants. Speak to us, for we are listening. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us, for we are in need of mercy. And Holy Spirit, fill us to the brim, and then even more so, so that all people see in us when when we're here, when we leave this place, is just you pouring out. It's in your name we pray. Amen.